Hello and welcome to the MLM.com podcast. I'm your host, Kenny Rollins, and in today's episode, we're visiting with Spencer Reese, who's an MLM attorney for uh, Reese, Poifair, and Richards. Spencer, how are you today? Doing wonderful, Kenny. Thanks for having me on today. And I guess I, I always introduce you as an MLM attorney, but I should just say you're an attorney because uh, you, you're an attorney. You've been doing this for a long time. Why don't you give our listeners a little bit of background on, on some of your experience? Well, sure thing. Yeah, and, and you're right. Yes, uh, while I am indeed a lawyer or attorney, if you want to be formal about it, um, I, I have made my living in in the direct selling space since being in-house counsel uh, at a, for a major direct selling company back in 1992. And uh, hung out our, our shingle and went, went in private practice just focusing on direct selling and FDA and FTC work since uh, 1996. And so we've, we've had the, the great privilege of, of serving direct sellers for the last 20 plus years, serving direct sellers almost exclusively, really. Um, and, and it's been very, very rewarding. Uh, there's just a handful of us in the country that do what we do. And so we're very pleased to be able to service this, this field. You and I go, go way back, uh, and, and you've helped me kind of cut my teeth in this industry. So uh, I'm excited to, to talk a little bit about this. And I'm sure, you know, like you say, there's only a few of you guys that, that specialize so heavily in the direct selling space. Um, and, and one of the things that I know you guys kind of have a pulse on is what the, the FTC is doing. Uh, and one of the things when you and I were talking a couple of weeks ago, getting ready, ready to record this, you mentioned that, that it was interesting. We've had, you know, it used to be the bread and butter of the FTC to go after, uh, direct sellers through pyramid scheme, uh, complaints. And you said that that's changed a little bit. So, so talk to me about the, how the FTC is, is going about their job these days. Well, sure thing. And, and this is really a very, very interesting topic to anybody who's in direct sales and utilizes a multi-level compensation plan, which is just about everybody if, if you define direct selling as the DSA does. Um, but, <clears throat> but what we have seen is traditionally, I'm going to go back you know, some, some 50 years, really, and, and talk a little bit about how the FTC has traditionally pursued actions against businesses that they thought or claimed were pyramid schemes. And they were very complicated, difficult actions to bring to prove. Um, you know, the, the proof of what constitutes a pyramid tended to be um, somewhat of a moving target, not completely, but the evidence that to come up with tended to be a moving target. I think that's a better way of putting it. Um, what they traditionally would try to show is that the company was inventory loading and inventory loading back in the 1970s and eighties, really up until 1996 was defined as the required purchase of large quantities of non-refundable merchandise. Well, everybody adopted a refund policy on their merchandise and consequently did not fall within the technical definition of inventory loading. 
So anyway, inventory loading was was perceived and and defined as the required purchase of large quantities of non-refundable merchandise. And so uh, most companies adopted a 90% one-year buyback policy on inventory, so they did not fall within the technical definition of inventory loading. In 1996, the definition of inventory loading changed in the Omnitrition case. And what happened is the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals redefined inventory loading. Actually, they never struck the first definition, so that one still applies. We now have two definitions of inventory loading. The definition of inventory loading that we more often hear about now is uh, inventory loading occurs when distributors make minimum required purchases or the minimum purchases necessary to earn recruitment-based bonuses without reselling the merchandise. So what that means is there was a transition. The original definition of inventory loading was oriented towards quantities of merchandise and the returnability of that merchandise, whereas the subsequent 1996 definition focused on the motive for purchase. If a distributor's motive for purchasing the company's products was to to generate what they called uh, recruitment-based bonuses, and they didn't resell the merchandise, well, then that was inventory loading. Now, that really came, that second definition has come to the fore since 2015, really, when the, the Burn Lounge decision was issued, because that was the definition the court focused on. And then in the more recent Vima and and uh, Herbalife cases, the the FTC focused on that definition of inventory loading. So really, and and the evidence that they proffered to show that the companies were inventory loading was, A, the compensation plan itself, which typically have some sort of a PV, minimum PV quota, and distributors can meet their PV quotas through personally purchasing the necessary PV each month, and that keeps them active. And then they recruit others to do the same. Well, from the perspective of the FTC, that is inventory loading because the motive for purchase is financially motivated rather than motivated for the uh, bona fide consumer demand or market demand for the products. Um, and, and that evidence, again, is the, the compensation plan. And then they would use the company's actual sales data, and which would show that distributors were, in fact, uh, purchasing uh, consistently with uh, with how the compensation plan is is devised. Now you have to understand that proving motive is a a very muddy water. is is very muddy water. Um, it's it's not cut and dried. There's always going to be counter arguments to why a, an individual or a group of distributors is purchasing. And no matter what the compensation plan or the sales data bears out. It is, uh, you can always create a muddy water there. And you can, uh, and because it's not clear, I mean, it really isn't. I mean, I'm not, I'm not being flippant here and saying that it, you can always create muddy water. It is not clear. So the FTC, given the, the standard put forth in, in the 2015 Burn Lounge decision, it, it looked at that and said, you know, that's a tough case to make. But you know what? In every case we've had, we've ever brought, every pyramid case they've ever brought, there's always a companion cause of action or claim that the company was making false and deceptive income claims. 
And in, in since the Herbalife case, and more recently in 2000, well, actually in 2018, just last month, uh, the FTC filed, excuse me, it was in February. I keep forgetting we're in April now. Yeah. Uh, in February, the FTC brought a case against a company called Digital Altitude. And Digital Altitude was a network marketing company, smaller one, not, not a lot of people had heard about it. But the FTC found some rather egregious facts in terms of the income claims that, that the company was making. And, and, and I'm not commenting on whether the facts are accurate or not. I don't know. All I know is what has been reported by the FTC. And they, they alleged that the company was representing that you could make very large sums of money in just, you know, 90 days. And, and, uh, you know, they apparently produced sufficient evidence to the court and got an ex parte TRO, a a temporary restraining order. They got the company's assets frozen and they got a receiver appointed to run the business. Now that's the exact same relief that they seek in pyramid cases. However, they didn't have to prove motive for purchase. Proving the income claims were false and deceptive was far, far easier and far less uh, uh, resource intensive than bringing a pyramid case. So <clears throat> what we've seen is is that and and to, so what we're seeing is that the FTC is has another arrow in their quiver. I'm not saying that the pyramid cause of action is going away, not not by a long shot. But we do see that the FTC has another arrow in their quiver. And, you know, as we have seen in the pyramid cases, when the FTC starts its fencing in process, they start with cases where they have very favorable facts to their side. And then they, they start setting their fence posts and where they want the boundaries to be. Uh, in my opinion, the digital altitude case is an effort or an initial effort to start fencing in the fencing in process, as we have seen in the uh, traditional pyramid cases. Now, the digital altitude case is not standing alone. It's not some anomaly. If you look at the much more widely publicized Herbalife case, in that complaint, the pyramid claim is never alleged. The P word never even comes up. Now, there's you can you can distinguish the two certainly because the the Herbalife case was he- heavily negotiated. They and they certainly negotiated uh, strongly to ensure that that word, the pyramid word, never appeared in the complaint. Right. But but nonetheless, even though we're confident that that was a negotiated term, um, nonetheless, the the FTC was able to resolve the case without the pyramid claim. Now, in press conferences, the FTC the, the FTC commissioner at the time danced around the question, well, is this a pyramid scheme? I mean, she danced around it, uh, that question five or six times, every which way she possibly could. She just wasn't going to answer that. So it was pretty evident that, that it was a negotiated issue. But be that as it may, I mean, between the Herbalife and the uh, digital altitude cases, it's quite apparent that the FTC has now recognized they don't need to bring a pyramid cause of action to get substantial relief against a network marketing company. It's far, far easier to, to bring a claim that the company is engaging in deceptive and, and false uh, representations with regard to income claims. And that's where we have to really focus. Now, the good news is that's nothing new. We've known that we have to rein in the income claims for a long time. 
The bad news is that it's proven very difficult to do, as it's still a very, very common practice. And and so so this is more than just a wake up call. This is you know we this wake up call has been around for a long time, but this is much more of a call to action and immediate action and. And we have to understand that the FTC's ability to bring a case and, and, and more importantly, receive the traditional relief it has always sought in pyramid cases, their ability to bring those cases is, is much, much easier. And we make it much easier for them to the extent that a company is allowing income claims to prosper. Yeah, you know, and I find it interesting the way you put that because – Sounds like uh, the end result is the same, right? And people may be taking uh, false uh, comfort in the in the fact that they don't think that they're a pyramid or, or think that they can fight that, you know. But the other thing that uh, I found interesting is I I've heard so many people argue that case of motive where it's hey people aren't buying this just to qualify and things, and the FTC it sounds like you're saying is indicating that they may be just taking that off the table. Fine, we don't want to fight with you on motives. Uh, let's just talk about these, and especially with social media and the Internet uh, and you know Periscope and YouTube and all of these things, it's easy to pretty quickly go out there and find a bunch of people making claims uh, that, that – that can easily, you know, whether whether they are false and misleading, you can paint them as false and misleading. So one of the first things I, I want to get your thoughts are, are uh, what's, what's a company's obligation uh, when it comes to a distributor posting something that's not company endorsed? Well, and that's, that's interesting because, you know, social media has become the most fertile source from which the FTC or a state attorney general or any plaintiff is going to gather evidence to support their case. And it's just easy. You sit at your desk, you point and click, and, and there's all sorts of distributors making uneducated claims. It's not like they have malintent. They're doing it out of enthusiasm and ignorance. And it's very easy to find that material. Um, so the company's obligation, well, we have to understand that the companies are indeed responsible for whatever their sales force posts. Uh, so if it's an inappropriate income claim that the company itself would never make, it's nevertheless responsible for what its sales force posts. So it comes down to how do we deal with that? How do we address that and fix it? And, and this is, again, nothing new. It comes down to education and compliance. And in the first instance, as I indicated, it's my opinion that most distributors engage in uh, uh, non-compliant activity, especially income claims, out of enthusiasm and ignorance. They just don't know what the rules are, and, and they don't know why. Their attitude is, well, if this is what I really made or this is what my upline really made and it's truthful, I can say it. Well, <clears throat> that's not exactly true. That's only partially true. And, and the reason is that, you know, and it, Income claim is a, a type of a testimonial or an endorsement, and the FTC has specific uh, guidelines on what you have to do, additional disclosures that are necessary to make a, a what could be viewed as a, um, um, a misleading income claim or a misleading testimonial or endorsement to clarify that and make it non-misleading. 
you can never clarify a false claim. That, that just doesn't work. You can disclaim it and modify or, and, and, and add all the footnotes in the world, but if it's false, it's false. You can't fix that. But a claim that's potentially misleading or can be interpreted in different ways by different people, you can clarify that with disclosures and disclaimers. And, and that's the purpose of why we proffer or put forth an income disclosure statement. You know, most companies have an income disclosure statement. And, and honestly, we have to do a better job of making those more transparent. But, but that's, that's really ultimately the fix. That's the training part. The compliance part, the second part of that equation of fixing the problem is, again, if you have those chronic offenders, those people that, have, that are just not teachable or just are intentional making the inappropriate income claims, then the compliance department has to step in and, and wear its enforcement hat rather than its teaching and training hat and take uh, disciplinary measures against those non-compliant reps. You know, one of the big things that is news to far too many people is that ignorance or the fact that they're an independent representative does not uh, clear you of your obligation to take those measures first, uh, teaching and training, and then second, uh, punitive measures for for noncompliance. Um, and I think there, in my experience is there's far too many companies that say, oh, well, they're independent distributors. Yeah, and they're going to learn the hard way. That's yeah. unfortunate, but they're going to learn the hard way because that is that is by far, hands down, the most fertile source of evidence that, that any regulatory agency is going to uh, to to mine and farm for evidence in any case that they bring. Yeah. Now, the next thing you you talked a little bit about saying that that in your opinion the income disclosures need to be improved and, and be more transparent. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit more about what you think uh, should be seen in those? Well, sure. I mean, I mean that is a big, big issue. I mean, I, I, honestly, I think we we look at a lot of the income disclosure statements, and, and the companies recognize that <clears throat> the actual incomes of their sales force are are rather disappointing, to say the very least. They're very disappointing. You know, there's not that many people that are making uh, substantial money. Very, very few. A fraction of a single percent, in fact, are making substantial or retirement type or full-time income. Um, and that's pretty common. And and so what we see is that they they try to skew the numbers, the averages and the data so that it looks more favorable. And what they'll do is they will have a large body of uh, reps on their books as distributors, but they will only report the incomes of quote unquote active distributors. And how they define an active distributor, it varies. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm reviewing one IDS right now for a client that that they do a pretty good job of it. You know, it's anybody who made a purchase within the preceding year. Others will only define an active rep as a rep who earned a commission, and and you know, so so they're excluding eighty, ninety percent of those that they have on their books as distributors, and and therefore the incomes that they're reporting, while dismal, are vastly overstated. And so that, that, that practice was actually called out specifically in the digital altitude case, and, and I've seen it many times over. So I think we need to be more transparent in, in what the actual income figures are, and it comes back to income claims again. Because you know, why do we have so many people 
on the books as distributors. Well, that's because that's how we onboard them. We enroll them as distributors when, in fact, they only want to, to conduct themselves or act as customers. They have no desire or motive to build a business or to recruit anybody. They simply want to buy the products at the best price. And our pricing structure, or the common pricing structure within direct selling, has been to give distributors the best price. And so there's a starter kit cost they have to purchase. But usually you can save more money by becoming a distributor, paying the starter kit price, becoming a distributor. And the savings is on, on the products is, is greater than the amount that you have to pay for the sales kit or the starter kit. So it's, it's you know, reasonable consumer behavior to become a rep, even if you don't intend to build a business so you can buy the products at the best price. And, and so, you know, we, we end up onboarding people as reps. And, and, you know, the sad truth is oftentimes they're initially enticed to join because of in, income claims. And, and then when they don't buy, or, or excuse me, when they don't qualify for commission and they're not active, but they do indeed like the products and stay on the products, well, <clears throat> we, we the direct sellers have taken the position, oh, they're not active, they're not intending to build a business, we don't need to include their data in our income disclosure statement. Well, if they were onboarded under the guise of income, the income opportunity and income claims, well, then it's, it's not clear whether they're they should be a rep or, or if their intent in joining was as a rep or uh, if they're staying, if their intent in staying is to be a customer. We just don't know. And so I think we, we have to, and when dealing with the IDS or the income disclosure statements, we have to do a better job of onboarding. We have to make it very, very clear that, that uh, uh, you know, or, or ensure that people are not enrolling based on income claims. You know, if, if they want to be a customer, let's let them onboard and join as a customer, preferred customer or something. But get rid of the income claims in the recruiting process so that we can accurately onboard them into the right classification um, and then become more trans. And, and that inherently will cause our, our income disclosure statements to be more accurate because those who are uh, joining for purposes of being customers will not be included in the distributor ranks. So we won't need there. There won't be any need to to go through that active versus non-active distributor distinction. You know, and you're hitting on something that that over the years I've become more and more passionate about. I don't know if passion is the right word, but more and more, uh, more and more, an advocate of is, you know, you talked about the muddy waters earlier uh, of motives. Well, we've been putting ourselves, as you've alluded to, we've been putting ourselves in a tough spot because right from day one, we've been causing people's motives to be unclear. Because there are two potential benefits to signing up as a distributor so often. One is a chance to potentially uh, have those income opportunities. But then two is I may never have signed up as a distributor with the intention to make a single penny except for in the case where I'm saving money because I'm getting the better price. So now you're putting somebody on your books where you have no idea even on day one what their motive was. And that's where, and you and I have talked about this in the past, but that's where I fully, fully endorse the concept that there should be a path to the best price that doesn't involve being a distributor. So that if Mm -hmm. a person, and I also am a big believer 
in in required you know within 30 day training of a distributor that makes it very clear that you are engaging in a business opportunity if they've chosen to sign up as a distributor now that we've taken the pricing off the table it's more clear what their motive is but then with proper training let people know hey this is what it takes uh to to be successful and you are engaged in an entrepreneurial business opportunity which brings with it the risks associated and and not hide behind it because one of the things that you know i've i've grown up my entire life in this industry and one of the things that we preach a lot is it allows people uh, to start a business for or, or to engage in an entrepreneurial endeavor um, where you can be your own boss, et cetera, et cetera, for very little upfront cost. Well, okay, if we're going to embrace the positive side of it, we also need to train on the negative, not not even negative, but train on the risks of it. And, and this all goes back to what you've talked about, which is transparency. And if we did a better job in that onboarding process, we would first of all have better, cleaner numbers that we could put in our income disclosure statements. And we would have a happier field, right? Because if you have mandatory training that we know you took through the use of technology to say, hey, I took this, I just started a business you know, whatever training, and and then you make it clear that, hey, if, if this isn't for you, there's a return policy, right? You don't get people who are six months in and feel like they've been lied to about the opportunity. And I think it's something we need to take the bull by the horns on and embrace and, and really self-police. I mean, I mean, these are things I'm passionate of or... or have strong feelings on regardless of the regulatory environment but by doing them then you also put yourself in a much better regulatory standing well that's that's i I agree wholeheartedly with you kenny i truly do um and and really the whole practice of onboarding or enrolling or sponsoring or recruiting people based on income claims has gotten so out of hand and the ftc has gotten wind of it and they're just sick of it so the bottom line is whether we, we want to change the, the process because it's the right thing to do or because we have to because of regulatory pressure, it's a change that's gonna, it's coming. And so we can either embrace it or have it shoved down our throats. And, and I think it would be far better if we embrace it because it's the right thing to do. And, and that's just something that, that, I mean, it's gotten out of hand, the practices have over the last 50 years. And, and you know, we used to truly be the direct selling uh, field. Now, it, and it, in, at least in the opportunity side of the equation, I'm, t- I'm not talking about the party plan side of the equation, but in the direct selling and the opportunity side of the equation, it's turned into the direct recruiting business. And, and let's, let's face it, that's, that's, and now I'm speaking in broad terms. There's, of course, exceptions to that, but but, you know, broadly speaking, that is that, you know, you, you go to rep meetings, corporate executives will disagree with me, you know, till the cows come home, but you go to the corporate or to the, the distributed meetings and that's what's going on. That's what's being pitched. You know, and I can't tell you the number of executives that, that disagree with me and yet they haven't gone out to a, to an individual distributor home meeting in 10 years. 
Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's unfortunate, but that's, that's the, re- or they haven't, they haven't monitored social media. They're just sticking their heads in the sand. Right. And it, yeah, and they want to pretend there's a few bad actors. And the question isn't how many are there? It's, are they out there and are they being public about it? And, and what are we proactively doing to stop it? Now you, you touched on something that, that I found interesting, and we'll have this be uh, our last topic. But one of the things that you mentioned to me in the past, just kind of in passing, is that party plans have not historically been targeted in the same way as your your other network marketing direct selling companies. Is there something you're seeing that party plans are doing different that uh, that has caused that? They're, they're much more about the product, of course. And motive for participating in a party plan is oftentimes not driven by income claims or the income opportunity. It's driven by the product. It's driven by the, the desire to, be, to participate in a social activity. It's the desire to be part of a group. But it's not driven by, by uh, income, uh, the income opportunity or, or inappropriate uh, income claims. Certainly, the income opportunity is there with party plans. It's just not front and center so much, and it's not emphasized so strongly. And, of course, party plans are oriented towards selling merchandise to customers. I mean, true customers in the eyes of the FTC. That is, people who are not reps or participants uh, in the, in the uh, business. They have not enrolled as reps. You know, they have a different pricing structure. And they have a you know a wholesale and a retail price, and and reps you know do indeed sell the merchandise, and so those distinctions are, are dramatic, um, and and so that's that's why I don't think we haven't seen the FTC action against the party plans. Party plans have a whole host of other legal regulatory issues they have to deal with, but but the devastating. Uh, <clears throat> Pyramid-type claims have not been an issue for party plans, nor do I foresee that they will be. The issue that we do see is that, uh, is there a pure party plan anymore? No, not so much. You know, they, they've, they've tended to migrate towards more aggressive MLM-slash-oriented uh, type uh, compensation plans. But at their heart, they're still much more about the product and, and the motive for for reps to join is not so focused and, and directed by income claims. And, and I think that's something that that's helpful to point out to people because there certainly is <clears throat> room to look at, say, okay, what could we do to more emulate that uh, regulatory friendly uh, behavior? Because, you know, people's goals, I, I am a firm believer that there are some great companies. I've worked with them. I've experienced it. And what we need is some of those great companies out there to lead the way in in doing some of these things and, and blaze a trail that others can follow. Uh, you know, compensation plans are a funny thing where if somebody is popular and if regardless of whether the compensation plan is good, bad, funny, weird, normal, whatever it is, people gravitate towards what the successful companies are doing. So some of these changes, all it would take is for one or two successful companies to start making them and people would start emulating that behavior. And so, 
you know, I know you've been beating this drum for as long as I've known you. Uh, and I hope that we can start to get uh, more people on board and, and, and following that advice. And, and let's be more realistic in what we're, what we're putting out there and more transparent and, and make sure that we're monitoring the field for bad actors. Agree with you wholeheartedly, Kenny. Truly, truly. Yeah, we've, we've in many respects made our bed and now we're being forced to sleep in it and we got to change the sheets. Yep. It's, they're too dirty. They're dirty. We got to change them. Yep, absolutely. Well, Spencer, I, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you joining us and we look forward to having you on again soon. Well, thanks, Kenny. I really appreciate it and appreciate the the time and what you guys are doing. Have a wonderful day. That concludes today's episode of the MLM.com podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Kenny Rollins, and I want to give a special thanks to Spencer Reese of Reese, Poifair, and Richards for his expertise and knowledge. Uh, We hope you enjoyed today's episode and encourage you to go and review this podcast on Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We also want to give a special thank you to Adam Holdaway and Jana Bangader for production support. We hope you'll join us again next time.